Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Dave. I am the manager of ministry operations here at Summit Crossing Limestone. We are very glad that you're here. Uh, I am thankful, as always, for the opportunity to fill in and help out uh, with the teaching of God's Word. Uh, this morning, we're um, filling in for Jamie Nettles, our pastor for preaching and vision, as he and some other folks from our church and some other churches are on a short-term team uh, in the Himalayas. They are trekking through the Himalayas trying to reach villages with the gospel who have not yet been reached, so that ultimately Jesus would be known and worshipped uh, to the ends of the earth as we were just singing. So we appreciate your prayers for them. Uh, we ask you to uh, keep them in your prayers. Uh, Pastor Jamie will be back next week to kick off our yearly vision series. Uh, we're going to pause our normal rhythms for three weeks and uh, just focus on, on mission and vision and, and look at um, counting the cost of following Jesus locally, regionally, and globally. Um, that'll be a brief pause from our normal rhythm on Sunday mornings of teaching through whole books of the Bible or whole sections of the Bible. Uh, today, we are finishing our teaching series through the book of Titus, as you heard. Uh, after the vision series, I believe we're picking up in First uh, and Second Samuel with some breaks and other passages of Scripture there. So today we're finishing in the book of Titus. We're going to look at all of chapter 3. Um, Unfortunately, you know, can't say everything that's worth saying in a whole chapter of Scripture in one sermon, but uh, we will hit the high points, I hope. Um, and throughout Paul's letter to Titus, what we've seen so far is uh, what it looks like to be a healthy church. That seems to be a, a key theme in Paul's letter to Titus. Paul writes about the importance of healthy church leaders, healthy doctrine, and healthy relationships in the church. He has said that uh, a healthy church stays rooted in the gospel and has members who disciple one another to grow in showing the beauty of the gospel in our lives. So that's a point he makes repeatedly throughout the letter, and it's a point that we highlight often here as a church. You know, we say uh, that our, our vision here at Summit Crossing is to see the kingdom and glory of God advance from the neighborhoods to the nations, uh, and in order to accomplish that, our mission is to make disciples who make disciples by knowing the gospel connecting in gospel relationships, and living out the gospel in the world. So we've got to know God through the good news of Jesus. We've got to go deep with God together in real Jesus-centered relationships as a church family, and we've got to let the good news of Jesus shape and direct every area of our lives. But how does that work? So it's easy to say live out the gospel. We see that that's a paraphrase of, of several different parts of the New Testament. Uh, what does that look like? You may think, okay, I'm a believer in Jesus, I get the gospel, and I want to live a, sh a life shaped by the gospel. What do I do? So how does believing the gospel lead to lives that look increasingly like Jesus in the world? Uh, there are many answers in the New Testament to that. This is not going to be a comprehensive uh, look at all the different ways believing the gospel leads to a changed life. Uh, we don't have time for all that, unfortunately. But this morning, I want to look with you at Titus chapter 3 at four ways that a healthy church lives out the gospel. Four ways that a healthy church lives out the gospel. Of course, the gospel is news. It's a declaration of what God has done, uh, but it has implications. It changes us. Uh, believing in Jesus and, and walking closely with Jesus shapes our lives and, and shapes uh, the way we interact with others. And so what does that look like? How does that work? Well, the first way that we'll see this morning that a healthy church lives out the gospel is Number one, we embody toward others God's posture toward us. 
We embody toward others God's posture toward us. So Paul begins chapter 3, as was read a minute ago, with a series of commands or exhortations for the Cretan church. Uh, He's talking to Titus and and through Titus sort of to the church. So he's talking past him a little bit and saying, hey, y'all, get on on board uh, with the the mission and vision here of of holiness and life transformation for the sake of the gospel. Um, And uh, he says, you know, remind them to do this and do this and not do this and not do this. But very quickly, he deviates from the list of to-dos and anchors it in the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus. So look with me, if you would, beginning in verse 3. We'll skip the to-dos for now. We'll come back to those. Uh, And this is immediately after to-dos, he says in verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's good news. It's not because we were good enough, but because of who He is. But according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's a series of sermons right there, and we, we can't unpack everything that's, that's there, but uh, glory to God. Uh, when we were unworthy, God had mercy on us. So Paul says, if we're going to be a healthy church that lives out the gospel, we've got to remember God's incredible, beautiful heart toward us in the gospel. He says, remember and think about and own up to the reality again of who you were before Jesus and how God treated you in that state. So first, who we were. He said, we were, we were sinful, right? We were undeserving. Specifically, he says, we were foolish and disobedient. We were straying from God and slaves to sin. He says, we were passing our days in malice and envy. And you might say, well, you know, I wasn't a particularly malicious or envious person uh, before I came to faith. Or you might say, well, I, I was saved at about six years old, and I wasn't really all that bad. Well, understand Paul is speaking broadly here about our sinful human condition. And the reality is, he's saying, there were seeds or variations of all these kinds of corruptions in our hearts, even though it worked itself out in different ways in us, to the point that the Bible could say that even our righteous deeds were filthy and worthless before God. We were so stained by sin. The reality is, and this is essential, if we're going to live the life that God's called us to, if we're going to glorify God and, and commend the gospel to others with our words and with our lives, we've got to own up to the fact and be moved again by the fact that there was nothing in us, no skill set, no accomplishment, no heart posture, no potential in us that God could have pointed to and said, there, that's why He deserves rescuing. Nothing. Nothing. And Paul kind of develops this ugly flashback uh, of of who we were before Christ towards this last sort of summary statement that we were hated by others and hating one another. Humanity apart from God's grace is hateful. We, We are the opposite of the one true God who is love. We were designed in God's image, made in God's image, created good for the purpose of loving God and loving others, reflecting His loving glory to the world. But our sin 
inverted God's image in us and we became proud and corrupt and hateful people. And Paul says, but God. Look at the contrast between us and God. When we were hated by others and hating one another, the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, and He saved us. Look with me at the beautiful posture of God's heart toward you, which we see just unleashed toward us in the cross of Jesus. Paul is saying, in contrast to who we were and what we deserved, God is kind toward us, not malicious. God is loving, not hateful. God is generous, not stingy. He says He poured out the Holy Spirit on us richly through Christ Jesus. When we look at the gospel and remember who we were and how God treated us, we ought to be overwhelmed by the glorious reality that God's heart toward us was gracious and not vindictive. Do you believe that? When you think of the things that you've done and, and, and how difficult it is to believe and to come to God for cleansing, do you believe that God is gracious toward you and not vindictive? So, yes, God has a holy law, and yes, He is a good judge, and yes, sin must be punished. He doesn't compromise His justice and His righteousness at all, but the cross of Jesus is God's cosmic megaphone to humanity announcing, my heart towards you is gracious and not vindictive. My heart towards you is patient and kind, and I will satisfy the righteous requirements of my law myself in the person of my Son, Jesus Christ, who died under God's wrath so that you wouldn't have to. Yes, God upholds His righteous standards, but He, praise God, He upheld His own standards in a substitute so that we wouldn't have to face the consequences of our sin. Praise God that Jesus chose and desired and was glad to go to the cross, as excruciating as it was, to bear in our place the punishment that we deserve so that justice could be upheld and we could receive the forgiveness of God. So we could be forgiven and welcomed into the enjoyment of God's love forever. The megaphone of the cross says to humanity, come, come in. Maybe you think you're so far gone that God could never love you. Or maybe you grew up attending church gatherings nonstop, but you've never known Him. You've just known about Him. And, but now there's all this pressure, right? And you feel like, well, if I, if I own up to that now, if I try to uh, really come to God now, He'll be embarrassing and, and maybe God will be disappointed in me because it's, it's kind of like I faked it all these years. The cross of Jesus Christ says, whatever you've done or not done, whatever you have faked or put off, the message of the gospel is there is more grace in God than there is sin in you. So come to Jesus. Right now you can come to Jesus where you're sitting. You can look to Him. You can cry out for forgiveness, and He will give it to you. Jesus said, the one who comes to me I will never cast out. He, he will never cast you out. He, Jesus is not going to shut the door in your face if you come to Him for cleansing and to get God. If you come humbly and say, I want you, I need Christ, He'll say, you've got me. Jesus is not going to screen your calls and send you to voicemail so He can avoid dealing with you like we do with frustrating people, right? He's the one calling you to come in to receive Him. It's because of Jesus and His 
posture of grace, the, the, the same posture of the heart of God towards us, His love, His tenderness, His patience. It's because of this that a pastor of one church that we're connected with says these words every Sunday morning toward the beginning of their gatherings. To all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a Savior. This church opens wide her doors in the name of Jesus, the friend of sinners. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. So I, I just want to pause for a minute uh, and, and just go to God together and pray for those of us here that, that if, if there's anyone outside of Christ, that today they would, they would move from darkness into light, from the kingdom of Satan unto God and receive eternal life and be in God's family with us forever. Um, so we're, we're not going to close. We've got some more points. But uh, I just I didn't want to pass uh, this opportunity to, to appeal to God for the souls of, of those who are here. Let's pray together. God, you're so good. You're so gracious. You're so kind. We didn't deserve a bit of your kindness and patience toward us, and yet you poured out not just patience, but grace and sacrifice and redemption and love and eternal life and joy in your presence and everything we ever needed. God, you are everything we've ever needed, and you gave us yourself in the person of your Son. We praise you. We thank you, God. We give you our hearts. We give you our lives. You own us, and we thank you. You're a good king. You're a good savior. You're a good daddy. I, as a daddy, fail. All of our dads have failed, but God, you're a good dad. You love your children well. God, I pray right now that you would stir hearts now to believe the gospel, to turn from sin and trust in you, to to believe that you're so good that you will receive us as we are and not leave us there, but welcome us in and wash us and make us clean and, and be delighted in by you forever. God, would you save folks today? And would you, through us, because of this time, would you save more folks as we go from here? That the name of Jesus Christ would receive glory and honor and majesty and praise through the saving of sinners. God, thank you for saving us. Keep saving. God, save among the, in the villages of the Himalayas. Save to the ends of the earth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, that's how God treated us in the gospel. The, that's the posture of His heart toward us, that in spite of our sin, He was patient and kind and gracious. And Paul says, remember that, love that, treasure the beauty and the glory of God in His free sacrificial grace toward unworthy sinners like us, like marinate in that, and then turn and embody that same posture towards others. Look back with me, if you would, at verse 1. He says, remind them, we'll skip a couple phrases, we'll come back to those, remind them, Titus, remind the believers to be ready for every good work, like spring-loaded. When, 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 you're, when you're pricked uh, or when there's a need or an opportunity, your, your reaction is not, what can I preserve? What can I maintain? Do I have to? What's going like, no, be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we were once foolish and sinful, but God loved us and rescued us through Jesus. So, I want to think about this this morning with you. Why is it that we're tempted to be harsh rather than gentle 
in our marriages? Why are we tempted to be snarky and condescending rather than courteous towards those we disagree with online? Why are we so quick at times to, in Paul's words, speak evil of others? Most of the time, I think it's because we feel like they deserve it, right? Like, like they did something dumb and they deserve being made fun of, or they did uh, something rude and they deserve to be, have someone be rude back, or they violated my, my rights or my comfort and I'm you know, justified in this passive-aggressively letting them know I'm not happy about it or doing something to pay back. Like, like they did something and it wasn't right and we feel offended and we want to do something about it. We feel like they deserve it. And the reality is, in a sense, they do. They actually, they deserve that and, and much worse, infinitely worse. And Paul says, and so did we. And yet, God, the righteous judge, overflowed in his heart with a love toward us that compelled him to not give us what we deserved. Wouldn't it be beautiful if by God's grace and with God's help, we go and do likewise? Like not trying to gin it up, not trying to artificially produce it, but just enamored by the grace that God's shown us and we say, God, you're so beautiful. Would you make me more like that? Would you let me be reflexively ready and eager to overlook offenses, to be patient, to be kind when people might deserve, in a sense, a, a harsh word, not, to not give it to them. That's Paul's point. Be radically kind to those who don't deserve it because that was the beautiful posture of God's heart toward us. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't ever call sin, sin, or call someone to repent when that's needed, but when we need to do that, and we do because we love people and sin's going to destroy people. But when we do that, we do it as those who have been shaped by the mercy that God has shown us. Freely you have received, Jesus said. Freely give. So we live out the gospel at least by embodying toward others the gracious, kind, patient, tender heart posture that God had toward us. Now, at this point, I think it would be helpful to tell you that uh, that first point was by far the longest. Uh, so, we're going to make it. All right, here we go. All right, secondly, and closely related to the first, how, do, how does a healthy church live out the gospel? Well, another way is we maintain before others our first posture toward God. So it's not just that we should treat others the way God has treated us, though we should. Another angle on this, another motivation, another real thing that fuels gospel transformation, gospel living, is that we're called to live in a way that fits with our initial conversion. Not just how was God towards you, but, but what happened in your heart when you became a Christian, as you were coming to God by faith. Paul says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, but God saved us. So, how did you come to God? What was the posture of your heart at the time that you became a Christian? Well, part of it is that we came to God kneeling before Him as our King. 
We're saying, yes, if this is your heart towards me, you're the Lord of the universe, you created me, you own me, and you gave your own son, Jesus, you gave your own self for me, yes, you're my king. I want to kneel before you, rule my life, tell me what to do. You're right and wise and good, and I'm not, so I trust you. Let me honor you as king. So why then would we turn around and reject the civil authorities that God in His sovereignty has placed over us? So he's like, remind this, you know, very independent, like, you're not going to tell me what to do kind of culture to submit to rulers and authorities. Uh, as long as they're not requiring us to sin against God, we're going, we're going to obey the government because we want to obey and honor God. They're not going to get it right every time. That's okay. We're trust, entrusting that to God. I should pause and say, man, there's a whole lot that could be said about that whole topic. That's like a series of, of sermons or studies about government. So uh, in April, we are hosting uh, Secret Church again. Let me clarify, because I heard that last year some folks heard the word Secret Church and tuned out thinking it was some kind of secretive cultic kind of thing. Uh, if you're not familiar with Secret Church, David Platt, who is not a cult leader, um, is solid Bible evangelical pastor, um, was so moved years ago by um, seeing the persecuted church around the world where he got to go and minister over and over again. And they were like, okay, shut the doors, hide from the authorities. This is our chance. As, as Set a watch. Let's dive into the Word. Let's feast on the Word. We're going to have to hide it when we walk out of here uh, if we're going to do any good in the world. So, that they don't, so let's go. And, and he was like, God, you are great. And let's He's like, if they can have this kind of hunger for the Word in a secret place out of fear of persecution, why can't we have that kind of fervency and devotion uh, as, a, as a Western church in peace here? So he started the thing at his church, and now it's kind of a yearly thing. There's a whole ministry about it. Anyway, it's on a different topic every year, and uh, we're going to host it again this year as a simulcast. So it's happening in D.C. We'll stream it in here. And the topic this year is God, government, and the gospel. We'll look at the nuances. We'll look at the, the challenges. So I, I'm going to have to defer to David Platt for some of the, uh, the nuance of that one. But largely, we can say we came to God kneeling before Him as King. So we're going to trust Him and submit when, we're, when it doesn't require us to sin to civil authorities that He's placed over us. More than that, and, and more central to the heart of this whole passage, when we came to Jesus, we did not come proudly. We didn't come feeling superior to other people. We didn't receive God's grace with a sense of entitlement and self-assurance. We came humbly. We were brought low by uh, the uh, reality of our sin, and we were astonished at God's mercy for us. And that was the right posture to have, that humility before God. It doesn't make sense for us to approach God like the Pharisee in the temple who was humble bragging as he prayed, oh God, I thank you that I'm such a great guy. And I'm so much better than other people, especially this, you know, scum over here. Like, that's not religion that pleases God. But the scum guy over here who had done a bunch of, you know, sin and, and knew it was humble and beat his breast and was broken over his sin and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm not good enough. You're good enough. I need you. Please be kind to me. And, and Jesus said, that guy went home declared righteous, not the other guy, not the proud man. So it makes sense that we approach God like the tax collector, humbly, in brokenness and repentance, and that's the one that God justified. God said in Isaiah 66 too, this is the one to whom I will look. This is a favorable look of grace, of, of kindness. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It's so Old Testament, New Testament, this is a huge thread throughout the Bible. 
Humility before God is required. So why would we approach God humbly, contritely, poor in spirit, meekly, and then turn around and approach the world arrogantly, rudely, and scornfully? Like, like I recognize my, my lowliness before you. Y'all need to get your act together and figure it out. I'm great, and I can look down on you. No. When Jacob finished wrestling with God in the Old Testament, he walked away with a limp, not a strut. And so should we. Now, we, of course, we absolutely should approach God boldly and joyfully. The Bible says that. In Christ, we have confidence. The price has been paid, and we, come, we can come straight into the throne room like a kid coming to his daddy to ask for a cup of water. Like, I, I have access to you with confidence because of what Jesus has done. But there's a very different posture and flavor and, and, and smell about a person whose confidence is in Christ as opposed to someone whose confidence is in themselves. Paul says, be kind and gentle and courteous toward others when they're getting on your last ever-loving nerve. Why? Because we're no different. They are you. Like, we, that's us. In ourselves, apart from the transforming power of God, we once were exactly the same as those we're tempted to look down on. And to the extent that we're no longer that way, where there has been transformation and change and progress, we can't take credit for that. It's all grace. It's all gift of God. It's what God has done. So we don't look down on other people because that doesn't fit with the way we came to God. We came to God humbly, and we want to maintain that kind of humble posture before the world. Thirdly, how does a healthy church live out the gospel in the world? One way is we display to others our new life from God. Display to others our new life from God. We should be devoted to living out the gospel in good works and in gentle kindness and love, not only because that's, God, that's God's posture toward us and not only because it fits with our initial posture before God, but thirdly, because it fits with our new life from God. So notice verses 5 and 6. Paul says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration, that's new birth born again, new creation, and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You are made new by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Paul says, you are not who you used to be, so stop living like who you used to be. Frequently, the New Testament reminds Christians, this is who you are now because of Jesus, so be who you are. Live out of that, not out of your old self. Don't go back to the, who you're not anymore. Stay who you are. We see it in Romans 6, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4, and elsewhere. I mean, this is, this is repeated in the Bible. So often, when we're rude and mocking toward others, if someone encourages us not to do that or challenges us on, you know, is that, is that really, you know, pleasing to God or something like that, oftentimes the, the justification that comes back is, well, I'm going to speak my mind. I mean, this, this is just who I am, you know. And, and I'm not going to be fake. You're asking me to be, be fake, and that, that's, God doesn't want me to be fake. This is just who I am. I've got good news for you. No, it's not. It's who you were. But God changed you. You've been born again by the Spirit of God. You've got a new nature. You've been washed from that filth. You have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. You don't have to go back to the way that you were 
even though it feels natural. So we've got this remaining indwelling sin that we wrestle with, and it feels natural, and, but what, what a mystery. The Bible is always saying, hey, I know that feels natural, but you've got a new nature. And part of the way God works it out in your daily life is to hear that truth and to believe that truth and to trust God and to ask Him to work it out and then to choose not to do this but to do that, depending on Jesus, not yourself. So you do resolve like we memorized last month from 2 Thessalonians 1. Resolve for good, but may God fulfill your resolve for good. You ask Him to do it. So our sinful nature is always tempting us to be who we used to be, and the Spirit of God is always working to free us Uh, from that to be who we truly are in Jesus. You are a new child of God with a new nature from God. A lot of other passages, I don't have time for those passages that just say the same thing. But hear hear this. When you exercise self-control in talking with someone in order to restrain yourself from saying something unkind, you're not suppressing your real self in order to present a fake self. What you're doing is actively dying to your old self and growing into your new self. So this is freedom. This, this is who you really are, not, not this other. Let me say that again. When we restrain ourselves from saying something unkind, we're not suppressing our real self and presenting a fake self. We are dying to our old self and growing into our new self in Christ. So this is good news. This is freedom. This is significance and what God has for us. This is something I'm still working on. I've got a lot of room to grow in snark and uh, sarcasm and stuff. Uh, so y'all pray for me and we'll all pray for each other. But by God's grace, let's press on to be who we are in Christ. All right, number four, another way that a healthy church lives out the gospel, we declare to others the good news God entrusted to us. We, we declare, we say it, we don't hold it back. So this whole thing has been uh, do good works, do good works, be ready for good works. Well, the most ultimate good work there is, is telling people the word of life, the only message of hope that they have to be saved from the wrath of God and the judgment that they deserve. The most essential way to live out our new life in God, among all these other valid ways, and I'm not minimizing that, we've got to declare the good news of Jesus to people. The gospel that Paul's been repeating and unpacking throughout this letter and in every letter is the indispensable message of the Christian life. So we're not called to merely be super nice people who yet keep the gospel to ourselves. No, we're called to love our neighbors and even our enemies, and we're not loving them well if we hold back from them the only message that can save them. By definition, we are are a good news people. This news of eternal life in Jesus is for all the world. It's for the Himalayan villages. It's for the unreached in Africa. It's for the nations you've never seen and for your neighbor who you can't stand. So we can't just be super nice and plow through to to just maintain this level of, of southern hospitality or whatever and yet stay silent about the gospel. At the same time, We dare not swing the pendulum the other way and say, well, I'm just going to tell them what they don't want to hear, whether they like it or not, and and be rude and arrogant. There There are few things, I'll say, maybe a few things in the world uglier than a vocal Christian who is arrogant, rude, and unloving. Like, nobody likes to be around that guy. (laughs) Like, let me tell you, and then like, mic drop and out of there like, okay, thanks for coming. Like, uh, the gospel has, it's not just content, 
Let me be careful. The gospel is content. It's news. It's truth. It's beauty. It's, it's this, this is the fact. And hear this and receive this. And here's what. So it's a message. But coming through the, the mouth of a person who's been changed by it, the gospel necessarily has a tone to it as well. It's like lyrics that have music to it. And, and it's, it's this discordant and, and, and ugly thing when we speak beautifully true words in a totally contradictory tone and posture. It's like, you know, take a love song or love poem or something and, and perform it in, in a heavy metal style or voice. Like, I'm not going to illustrate, you get the idea. Uh, like, it doesn't fit. It's, there's ugliness about it. And, and God is saying through the Apostle Paul, Let's pray for God to help us speak the gospel truly and in a tone that doesn't undermine the message. Like, let's do it. Let's resolve to do it and say, God, would you change me? Make, help me to love these people. The people that I see on the news and I just scorn the others, weird, contemptible. No, give us a love for the nations like you have, for our political enemies or, or whatever. And let me pause and say all this talk about kindness and not quarrelsome and not speaking evil of others. You might not have known this happens to be an election year. Um, so you might see a couple things online about that between now and then. Um, it's okay to, to call sin, sin, and to say, hey, here's what the Bible teaches, here's our responsibility as Christians, and here's where this platform and this candidate doesn't line up with that, but, but there's a way to do that um, that does not seek to just trash and demean the, the human dignity of that person, but is humble and says, you know, I don't want to just treat you the way that I think you're treating me, even if they are. Like, let, let's, let's rise above by God's grace and say, let me treat you the way God treated me, which included pointing out my sin and calling me to repentance. We can do that. We can have healthy conversations about complex and, and passionate disagreements. Um, and I, I pray that God would help us to do that. All right, so Paul says, the saying is trustworthy. What saying? The gospel of Jesus. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. What things? gospel truth and humble love that flow from the gospel, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. If we're going to be of good to the world, if we're going to be profitable for the world, we need to declare the gospel with our words and display it with our lives. That's, according to God, that's excellent. That's a beautiful thing. That's profitable for people. And Paul says, you know what's not profitable for people? straying from gospel truth and gospel love. Look at the next few verses. So these things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So that escalated quickly. We're talking about kindness and, and tenderness, and now, hey, cut that guy off. Kick him out, right? Whoa. The message and posture of the gospel is so essential to our health as a church and God's glory among the nations that when it is threatened by wolves among the sheep, the shepherds of the church have to get tough. Not angry, not hateful, not arrogant, but firm, resolute and unflinching. When a false teacher comes in, 
trying to divert the people of God off the narrow path, like these Judaizers or, or other sort of cultic false teachers that were coming in in Crete, and Paul's, you know, defending Titus against them and, and, and saying, like, no, you do have the apostolic authority to say, like, this is the way, and, and you can't mix it, you can't change it, you can't de- deviate from that. When a false teacher comes in trying to divert the people of God off the narrow path saying, yeah, yeah, the gospel, the gospel, of course, everybody believes the gospel, uh, I'm, I'm in favor of the gospel, of course, but what really matters is this other stuff over here. Here's the stuff that really gets me excited, and it could be um, a, a, a cause that, that, you know, is something that the Bible says is uh, a debatable thing uh, or doubtful thing, uh, or it could be an emphasis that, that minimizes the gospel and, and elevates some other aspect of the Christian life that tends to puff us up or whatever. So maybe, maybe false teachers come in and they say, say things like, sure, of course, yes, have Jesus. I'm not saying don't have Jesus, but let me unlock for you the deep secrets of God. Like, I'll take you, Jesus is your starting point. Let me take you deeper. That's, that's been a, a theme in, in false teachers throughout history. Or, I love Jesus, but I'm passionate about this minutia from the Old Testament law or from somewhere else. Like, when someone tries to make the gospel and uh, love take a backseat to other things, the elders of the church are called to warn them and say, look, that's not what we're about, and that's not New Testament Christianity. And if you persist in these false teachings or unloving behavior, you will be demonstrating that you're not His. So come back over here to Jesus. Come stand with us for the good news of Jesus. He says, don't be divisive. Warn a divisive person, but then he says, kick him out. Well, what do you do? He's being divisive by trying to draw people away. He's saying, you stand firm and call him to that. Call him to the gospel. Call him to faithfulness to God and love. And if a person is obstinate and unwilling to get on board with Jesus, Paul says the leader should not keep on trying to force a square peg of heresy or lovelessness into the round hole of the church. It's just not going to fit. That's not who God made us to be, and, and, and so don't persist in those things. Let, let's uh, be faithful to the gospel. So he's saying, give them chances, warn them once. Like, hey, th- this is serious. Let's be real about this. Don't go down that path. And then they, they, they continue. And of course, this is assuming that you've already, you've already talked, there's clarity, there's understanding, you're giving people a chance to, to grow if that's what's going on. But if this is false teaching, they're coming and saying, yeah, yeah, no, 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 not the gospel this, not grace works, not what, then, then warn them. And then warn them again, and then say, okay, you are not preaching the gospel. What you're calling people to is taking people away from Jesus, and that's not welcome here. And that's not unloving, that is loving, to show the, the seriousness of believing the gospel, and is protecting the flock. We warn them once and twice, but if they keep on trying to divide the church with the lies of the enemy, he says, be done with them. Why? Because too much is at stake. We've got a beautiful God-given life to live for the glory of God and the salvation of the world, and we're not here to be an endless debate club where anyone with any false teaching can stay forever and keep arguing and, and diverting Christians from the mission. Like, that's just not what the church is. So we can talk, we should have those discussions, we should plead with un- unbelievers, but that, we can't call them Christians and call them members faithfully in the church if they're deviating from the truth of God in significant ways. So the glory of God in our lives and among the nations requires our whole lives. So we're going to keep focused on living out the gospel by declaring to others the good news God entrusted to us, and we're going to seek to live it out in love, in good works, 
so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Paul says that, verses 12 through 14. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, so one of these guys is probably bringing the letter to him, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. There's some need that he's asking Titus to come meet. They've already talked about it or, or Artemis will tell him. Do your best to spend, excuse me, to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. So they, they've got some mission. Either they're going to the unreached, their missionaries going out, or there's maybe a need in another church, and this church is going to bring some aid and relief to the hungry, starving Christians over here or something. They're, they're on a mission. And let our pe- in connection with these things, he says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. So when there's an urgent need, we're going to stay focused on meeting that need. When God calls a Zenos or an Apollos on mission to advance the gospel beyond our city, we're going to see, if at all possible, to make sure that they don't lack anything. We've got a mission from our king to make disciples who make disciples. So we're going to commit to gospel community and to living out the gospel in the world together. And it's encouraging to know that God has entrusted our leaders with the job of guarding that mission from getting derailed by heresy or by Christ-denying lovelessness. So it's not just the elders. We all have a part to play in that, to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, as Hebrews says. Uh, The elders equip the saints for the work of ministry. So let's get in community. Let's love each other well. Let's help each other grow and do the hard work of uh, growing as family, as servants, and as missionaries to the world around us. The, the call of God, the purpose of God in living out the gospel is so high. Let's commit to one another, press in in community, not just a, a, a weekly meeting only, but really knowing each other and, and pressing on to love God more. If you don't know Jesus, we want you to know Jesus. He is worth knowing, infinitely worth knowing, and you can today, right where you are, know Jesus. If you know Jesus, but you need to repent of sinful harshness or anything else, You can today, right where you are. God is gracious, and He calls us to press on away from who we used to be and toward who He's called us to be. If you want to talk with us or pray with us in the back, we would love to pray with you. You We're not priests. You don't have to go through us to get to God. Jesus is our priest. You can go directly through Jesus to God. But if you have questions or or want to discuss anything, I'll be in the back. Others will be in the back. We'd love to pray with you. Uh, If you want to get connected in community and discipleship, we encourage you, uh, fill out one of those green connect cards, drop it in the offering basket or at the table in the back. Uh, If you don't have one in front of you in the seat, they're at the back table there. But whatever it looks like, pressing in into the community where you already are, repenting of sin, going and asking someone to forgive you, let's fix our eyes on Jesus and press on. Let's look together to Jesus for more cleansing, more strength, more power to walk in love and faithfulness together for His glory. To all who sin and need a Savior, this church opens wide her doors in the name of Jesus, the friend of sinners. Let's pray. God, thank You for the gospel. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for loving us first. Thank you that your loving kindness appeared to us when we were still hateful and hated. When we were undeserving and sinful, led astray and foolish, God, we had nothing to commend ourselves to you, but you commended yourself to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. You said, here I am. Receive me, love me. And God, we just thank you. We praise you. You are so glorious and so worth it. Lord, we can never get enough of you. It'll take eternity. God, we can't wait to be with you. 
In the meantime, would you fill us and free us from enslavement to lesser things so that we would join you in your mission of living out the gospel in the world? Would you help us not to depend on ourselves or on our own strength, but to trust in Jesus to empower us by his spirit? Lord, we look to you and we ask for your help. Make us more like Jesus. Help us to love each other well, to be who you you have already made us. We praise you and thank you and continue to worship you now in Jesus' name.